Welcome to Harper Audio Presents. This is Aaron Wicks from Harper Audio. I recently spoke with Jesse Burton, author of The Miniaturist, on sale August 25, 2014. Set in 17th century Amsterdam, during the trading peak of the Dutch East India Company, The Miniaturist tells the story of a rural girl who moves to the city to become the wife of one of Amsterdam's wealthiest traders. There, 18-year-old Nella is unprepared for what she encounters. Her husband, Johannes, is elusive and unaffectionate. His sister, Marin, tends the house and is possessive of her domain. Even the maid, Cornelia, and the manservant, Otto, are strangely aloof. Though Nella feels fully grown, her primary task in her new role as wife is populating an exquisite dollhouse, a miniature identical to her new home in Amsterdam. Nella is aided in this endeavor by a mysterious miniaturist who can seemingly see into the house itself, the minds of its inhabitants, and maybe into all of their futures. Jesse's debut novel is full of secret whispers in the night, questionable loyalties, and friction with an oppressive Calvinist society. As the tension builds, so does the reader's sense of foreboding, leading to a riveting conclusion. Before we hear from Jesse, let's listen to an excerpt from the audiobook performed by Davina Porter. In this scene, Nella stands in the hallway of her new home in Amsterdam for the very first time. Are you the housekeeper? Nella asks. A giggle is badly stifled in the hallway shadows. The woman ignores it, looking out into the pearlescent dusk. Is Johannes here? I'm his new wife. The woman still says nothing. We signed our marriage a month ago in Ossendelft, Nella persists. It seems there is nothing else to do but to persist. My brother is not in the house. Your brother? Another giggle from the darkness. The woman looks straight into Nella's eyes. I am Marin Brandt, she says, as if Nella should understand. Marin's gaze may be hard, but Nella can hear the precision faltering in her voice. He is not here, Marin continues. We thought he'd be, but he's not. Where is he then? Marin looks out toward the sky again. Her left hand fronds the air, and from the shadows near the staircase, two figures appear. Otto, she says. A man comes toward them, and Nella swallows, pressing her cold feet upon the floor. Otto's skin is dark, dark brown everywhere, his neck coming out from the collar, his wrist and hands from his sleeves, all unending dark brown skin. His high cheeks, his chin, his wide brow, every inch. Nella has never seen such a man in her life. The miniaturist is set in uh, 17th century Amsterdam, and uh, to me, this isn't a very common time or location. You know, you see the paintings a lot, but I'm kind of wondering, uh, how did you decide to set your novel there? Yeah, I, I the decision came because I was in Amsterdam on a on a holiday uh, in 2009, and um, I went to the Rijksmuseum, which is their kind of national museum of all their sort of goodies from their their, their heritage. And when I was there, I saw this doll's house, or as they call it, a cabinet house. And it's about eight feet high. It's very big for a doll's house. And um, it's just very beautiful. It's, it just drew everyone in the room towards it. And 
when I discovered that it was an exact replica of this woman's house that she had commissioned to be built in 1686, and that over sort of nearly 20 years she had commissioned, I think, you know, nearly 800 craftspeople, and she had things shipped in from Indonesia and Japan, so anything she had that, you know, that kind of reflected the Dutch Empire at the time in her real house, like Japanese porcelain or, you know, Italian glass, she had made in miniature. And I was just drawn to this idea of this woman who, to all intents and purposes, had a lot of money to spend and was spending it on something that she couldn't live in, she couldn't sit on, she couldn't eat. Um, And so that, to my mind, just raised questions about domestic space and control and female roles in the society at the time. But also, it was really interesting about Amsterdam at the time, or the Dutch Republic at the time, did it or did it not condone such ostentation and expenditure when it was, you know, to all intents and purposes, quite a Calvinist society still, even though, you know, it was moving into the 18th century. Um, And then I just loved the city of Amsterdam. I think it just made an incredible backdrop to this, this story of contradictions and tensions that the miniatures turned out to be. One of the things you mentioned is kind of the decadence of the society. What did you sort of find? How was this taken up in the space of the time period? Yeah, I mean, at the time that I was writing, so sort of to the end of the the 17th century, something like about 45% of, let's just say, the city of Amsterdam's wealth was owned by about 0.01% of the population. Wow. So you're talking about a real difference of experience of life in the city at the time the dutch empire was the biggest in the world it was bigger than the british empire than the french it stretched all the way around the globe and the dutch were very good businessmen if you you know good being the operative word but you know they had the east india company and the west india company which was uh, i think probably possibly much more problematic because it was to do with slavery and plantations in in north america and south america even they say like People who were, say, not the super wealthy in the Republic ate very well because the agricultural conditions were excellent compared to the rest of Europe. So, you know, if if you were a Dutch peasant or, say, you know, even like a middle-class merchant, you did live possibly better than your counterparts in other countries. And they liked to kind of document this this wealth um, through paintings and buildings and clothes and dolls houses you know it's all a sort of sense of documentation and at the same time they had uh, a Calvinist streak in them that was promoting humility and modesty and uh, you know a constant awareness that fortune can change at any time that was like a real philosophy because partly Holland was shored up from the sea it was built on on marsh land and they had, in the 16th century, suffered two gigantic tsunamis that had killed tens of thousands of people. So they were kind of aware that the sea had brought them their bounty, but that it could take it away. So, you know, it was a wealthy society, but it was also had massive pockets of of people constantly reminding those wealthy people or reminding even the normal folk, this could all change. 
all of this being realized in the greater world of your story, did that beget the characters in the novel? Or, um, you know, it revolves around Nella as the primary character. Um, she's, you know, young and being married to Johan and uh, yeah. moves into his house that is controlled by his older sister, Marin. And did these characters come out of your research on that time period? Or did they start out when you first are seeing the dollhouse and evolve as you researched more? Yeah, it's a good question, because sometimes I don't know either. It's such a difficult thing to look back and kind of find signposts where you made decisions or it happened organically. The character of Nella, Petronella Ortman, was a real person. She did own the doll's house, and she was married to a man called Johannes. But that's really where I stepped in and made it very fictional. I made him twice her age. Um, I decided she had had a quite rural, possibly naive upbringing and, you know, hadn't been involved in the machinations of the city before um but in terms of whether those characters sort of came out of research or whether they fitted into my research it's kind of hard to say but I would hazard a guess that generally speaking all the characters I've kind of created them as oppositions to the, the sort of normal surface of society so perhaps there was a sort of um, moment where I decided to write them as means to explore what it would be like to not fit in but I do think they crept upon me I didn't sort of sit with an agenda like okay well you know Marin is a woman in a society where she can't run a business as well as she could you know were we in the 21st century it kind of just slotted in conveniently that you know these characters that I wanted to create who had dreams and hopes and anger um it was just perfect that the society that I was writing that that the research provided like perfect tension but no I I think they they to my mind were wholly individual they weren't like product of research so you think that they are very oppositional to kind of what your research says as as normal and um you know that sounds subconscious but why if you could hazard a guess why do you think that they evolved in that way for you well I suppose it's more interesting if you have a rebel in a society (laughs) than if you have just everyone like behaving accordingly um yeah no I mean I think that was it I mean at the time widows had a certain status in society they could kind of take over their husband's business to a point but you would never see them down on the trading floor you wouldn't see them in the government offices you wouldn't see them being you know casting judicial sentences so that's immediately an interesting question like what would it have been like for someone who didn't want to toe the party line who didn't want to just marry the next man who came along with a bag of gilders who didn't want to sit at home embroidering you know um so yeah if you create people who don't fit in as a writer i think you do have more fun but also people who are willing to play the game. That's also interesting. Um, but yeah, I think I've just created this bunch of <laughs> really complicated, rebellious outsiders. Um, and I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> <laughs> Why, well, it makes for a fascinating read. It makes it a lot of fun and really dramatically tense for the oh, reader, good. which is great. Good. Um, even though it's set so long ago... It, a lot of the conflicts feel really, really mm. modern and timely. Yeah. So I'm wondering if what do you what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's interesting because again, like I didn't necessarily set out to make that the case, mm-hmm. but I think if you you know whatever society you are, you know I think we like to think that we've progressed, and but I wonder. I think things move in cycles, and I think 
you know, yes, there are sort of political structures in place, but you have other things that happen to people, which is, you know, their human emotions and their desires and their dreams and their fears. And I suppose you have the issue of women being kept in a particular box. And Otto, obviously, who is, he's West African and he has, to all intents and purposes, been freed, but he is a manservant and his, yeah, his master, he's, his owner, well, I mean, I think Johannes doesn't view himself like that. He has educated Otto, he has taken Otto to as far as society will let him take him, like speaking all the languages and helping him trade. But, you know, Otto faces oppositions, and you could say that, you know, many people who are not, you know, passed as white and straight and wealthy in, 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 in our societies face invisible challenges and visible challenges that, you know, many people don't notice. Um, so I think that is just the eternal human problem, like it's the human mind, you know, being an individual in a society where there are rules, and obviously the rules are very stringent in Amsterdam at the time, but, you know, around the world now that's happening to women, um, people, you know, people whose sexuality doesn't fit the status quo, people whose race doesn't fit what, you know, people want to see, you know, it's, that, it does strike me as again like what was was that subconscious or was it you know engineered but it just wasn't because it just came from a place of just because there's not stuff documented very deeply about women's experience or you know freed slaves experience in Amsterdam at the time I mean there is stuff but there's just you know it's about who was the dominant force they're not going to write about that because that's not interesting to them doesn't mean that those people didn't have thoughts of rebellion or thoughts of self-fulfillment just because it's not you know on the sort of uh, dominant literature at the time now where did you find your research where what did you go to you know and then of course you had to fill in it seems like you you found a lot of gaps that you had to fill in for your characters yeah um, well, I mean, mainly books, just other people's books. I, there was one particular book by Simon Sharma, An Embarrassment of Riches, which is a big book, and it's just so detailed about the Dutch experience and their self-representation uh, through art, but also poetry. And and there was another book I read which was so specific, written by a Dutch historian called um, Amsterdam, Well-Being in Amsterdam's Golden Age, and it was so specific. It was about reading wills and inventories, birth registers, death registers, that kind of thing, trying to get a sense of like how people dealt with very eternal human emotions like grief and love and hope. And that was so interesting. And then like in terms of what would they eat, I found an amazing book called The Sensible Cook, which was a 1671 recipe book. So a lot of the recipes that are in the story are absolutely as they made it according to the seasons and according to what they could do with sources and spices from across the water. Um, paintings were very helpful. Um, but then I think, you know, you do have to get to a point where you remember you're writing a novel and a story and you're not just trying to present like a historic capsule. And I did, you know, a few things. There's um, a thing in it called Smith's List, which I, I don't know what the American version is, but we have the yellow pages. Mm-hmm. It's the same. We have the same. Right, <laughs> yeah. So I made up this kind of Dutch <laughs> yellow pages. And I had such fun doing that. And then I, a, a couple of people who read it thought it was, you know, real because I sort of seamlessly put it into the historical stuff. Um, and I was very lucky. I got to go back to Amsterdam once to kind of 
with a raft of questions like where did they bury the dead in the old church and I had assumed because I was just sort of in my 21st century mind they'd be a graveyard but no they buried them under the flagstones of the church they would literally lift flagstones up so as you're walking along the church floor you're walking under you know a charnel house so yeah it's quite yeah it's quite dark really and that you know that was so important because the first scene is a funeral at the church so I had you know had to change that up when I couldn't get to Amsterdam, which was basically most of the time, um, I just Google mapped. And because the centre of the city is still practically as it was, you can like go, oh, I'll go down that road and left and right. And then I think because they were so keen on documenting themselves, there is a lot. Um, and I'm sure I'll still have got something wrong, like, oh, no, he wouldn't wear that shoe. You think, well, maybe he kept it in his wardrobe for 30 years. <laughs> they were just his favourite shoes, okay? <laughs> You know, it doesn't affect the general story no, anyhow. No. But you know that that you know it's inevitable. I think when you write something historical, that you're going to annoy someone who's an expert in shoes of sixteen eighty six. But you know, it happens all the time. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now it has a bit of an kind of an ominous foreboding tone, and I, I kind of noticed that in the in the paintings of the time too. Mm. Do you think that? Um, comes from more of the some of the darker elements in the story, or do you think that's your kind of a general feeling that you have about that time period? I think it's the latter. I think it is there is a sense of don't rest on your laurels, don't be too sure of yourself. You know, there, there's absolute constant mottos of things can change. That was one of their things. It's Tekandakir and. Um, they had a game of the Kirspiel, which my characters play, which is, again, known in English as Game of Change. So there was this sense of light and dark, and, yeah, a lot of those still lifes are... It's funny because, again, it's kind of boastful. Oh, look at all my fruit from, you know, these foreign climes. Look at my beautiful game prize. Look at my fat hairs that I've shot. But if you look, they're going rotten. Like, they're just turning. The caterpillar's crawling into the flower. So it's like... It is, again, that slightly puritanical thing of nothing lasts forever and what you do on this earth is nothing compared to the glory beyond, so don't get above your station. And I think possibly that has crept into the book because it's like... But also there's a sense that that's part of the society but also, you know, characters in my novel transgress and they will be punished because it was still a very strict society. So Mm -hmm. that, that probably adds to the sense of ominous you know foreboding it's I mean again it's another thing that makes it so gripping you feel like you, you can't take yeah. yourself out of it yeah. really yeah please let there be some hope <laughs> <laughs> no there is too there yeah, is no obviously I yeah but it is it is a balance isn't it because you don't it, it it things do start piling up things start going wrong for them and um you have to, as a writer, sort of balance you know you don't want to just tie it up with a nice little redemption parcel at the end but um, I do believe that I've, you know, done my best to show that the spirit is still strong. You know, whatever kind of adversity you face, if you're brave, it can it can go a long way to facing up or standing up for this kind of opp- oppression. Mm-hmm. Now, now, one of the things that I feel like throughout the novel you're kind of wondering about is the miniaturist mm-hmm. um, for whom the book is named yeah, and yeah. Uh, is kind of a compelling force sending mysterious packages to mm. Noah to fill her house uh, with. Yeah. I mean, without giving anything too much away, mm. um, how, how did you kind of conceive of the need for this character? 
Well, she started off as a man. (laughs) She was in an early draft, and she was actually a love interest for one of my characters, which I think is really interesting because she was absolutely an agent, even then, of change, of affecting this insular inside world. It was like an outside force coming in and breaking everything up. And, you you know, because Nella um, orders a doll's house, she finds this miniaturist in the Smiths list and, and thinks, right, I'm going to control my life now. And actually she finds that she is again enthralled to somebody else, which is this miniaturist. And I think I conceived the miniaturist in earlier drafts as a far more nebulous presence, far more elusive. You know, she is a real person. Um, we only see her, we see her in fleeting glances and glimpses and... and and you do learn about her, but I'd never wanted her to be, you know, the big reveal. I think, to my mind, she is what you want her to be, and she wants that. She wants to hold up a mirror to each character that she affects and say, look, this is who you are, and you have it in you to be what more you want to be. And I think I also believe, you know, I, as the novel progresses, I want Nella and the miniaturist to start sort of fusing together and Nella realising, like, the qualities that the miniaturist has of, like, strength and um, a kind of narrative power and of her own life and, and an awareness and a power of observation that Nella has too and can use for herself to kind of get on in this difficult world. Uh, and also, like, Marin has qualities of a miniaturist, you know, manipulative to a point, but also um, somebody who can see and can control things to the good, but she's not a completely benign force because I think the miniaturist is is the, your alter ego. It's like there's another character, Agnes, who has dealings with the miniaturist and it doesn't work out for her because she's just too frightened about it and it's too unsettling to kind of face truths about yourself. So she's a she's not quite an avenging angel, but I needed her there to kind of make Nella pose herself questions and to find out answers because otherwise... You know, it's just, for my mind, it's just a nice commentary, but it's not the, the, you know, the big thing of who is the miniaturist, I think, is the question for many. But for me, it's more like why and Mm -hmm. how rather than who is the miniaturist. That's great. I love that. (laughs) And then uh, a final question, a little bit uh, more removed. I know you're an actress as well. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, two different, mm. um, but maybe complementary um, mm. creative directions and how they impact each other. They Yeah, it's interesting because I think there are absolutely useful things about being an actress when you're creating characters. I mean, all writers worth their salt can write characters and can present a real feel to a world I think when you're an actor perhaps you I don't know maybe you can cut through the layers and and if you're a good actor I suppose I'm not to flatter myself but like if you if you can sort of sense a person if you're willing to kind of abase yourself and set your ego to one side and just let that person occupy you but it's never quite as simple as that because I think when you're an actor what works and how you thrive is when you're generous and you listen and you you work as a group because there's nothing worse than an actor on stage thinking he's doing fantastic like inner work and doesn't give a crap about people watching him or the people he's working with but when you're a writer you're all the characters you're the director you're the producer telling yourself to turn up there's 
real um, technical behind the scenes work at play. So you can't just like lose yourself. Oh, my character does this. You know, you're you're working everything. You're working the stage set. You're working the lights. You're working who speaks when, and it's much more operational I would say than acting which in my experience has been very sort of free and fun I find writing is a lot well it's very solitary it's very um I don't know it's weird because when you act if you get it wrong or like it doesn't go so well no one's going to remember if you're in a play but when you write the book is in print I mean it might not last forever but it's kind of there comes a point where it's stuck forever and I know if you're in a film like it's stuck on celluloid but I don't know. They do complement each other, but I would say they're further apart, in my experience, than than people might think. I think they're just very separate disciplines. And you know, when you're an actor, you're just one, you're one character, and that you mustn't really try and be anybody else. But when you're a writer, you're very schizophrenic in that respect. You're everybody. Well, that's fascinating, and thank you so much oh, for no, talking with no, me. No, thank you. <laughs> really good questions. Outside her window, the canal is full of life. Boatmen call to one another about the winter nip in the air. On a far-off corner, a bread seller cries his wares, and two children holler with a hoop and stick. Within, however, all is quiet and still. The only sound in her room, the light talk of the golden pendulum. As Nella continues to flick through the book, An entry under M catches her eye. Miniaturist, residing at the sign of the sun on Kalverstraat, originally from Bergen, trained with the great Bruges clockmaker, Lucas Windelbreker. All and yet nothing. It is the only entry under Miniaturist, and Nella likes its brevity, its odd ring, She has no idea where Bergen is or what a miniaturist does, or indeed that clockmakers could be considered great. The miniaturist is certainly not from Amsterdam, that much is clear. Therefore, he cannot be a member of its city guilds, and it is illegal to undertake work for which registered citizens could earn money. Her father taught her that. He was from Leiden and claimed the draconian guild laws were more to blame for his downfall than the flagons of beer. Not that there can be a guild for miniaturists, surely. Nella is surprised the advertisement is in Smith's list at all. You've been listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast from HarperCollins Publishers, available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher Radio. Today we spoke with Jesse Burton, author of The Miniaturist, on sale August 25th, 2014, and listened to excerpts from the audiobook performed by Davina Porter. Thank you for listening, and please join us again for more conversations with our authors.